right, well, we'll have our Bible study now. And we're in Proverbs 22. Proverbs chapter 22. And we'll read verses 1 to 15. Proverbs 22, starting in verse 1. There it says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself. But the naive, the naive go on and are punished for it. The reward of humility and fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity and the rod of his fury will perish. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Drive out the scoffer, and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you teach us, Lord, how it is that we ought to practice, Lord, what is good and righteous, and walk, Lord, in the pathway of the righteous. Lord, to walk in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, establish us in his life, and we pray that what was true of him, Lord, that it might be true of us as well. Lord, practically, Lord, in terms of our own obedience to you and our faithfulness, Lord, our practicing righteousness in this present age, Lord, we pray that you would work these things out within us, and that, Lord, you might produce within us a very practical uh, godliness. So, Lord, be with us as we study your word and teach us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, there in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, says, A good name is more to be desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Here, a good name, to have a good reputation, right, to have uh, the standing as being a godly man or a righteous man, an honest man, a truthful man, Right? This is greater than wealth. It is better than silver and gold. Because the good name of the righteous is something that they will carry with them even into the life to come. The wealth that a man possesses is only for this life. It is a blessing from the Lord that God can give to a man if he so chooses. However, all of the wealth, the silver and gold that men possess in this life, will stay here in this present world. It will go on to whoever their inheritor is. But it will not pass with them into the life to come. Right? They came into the world naked, and we will depart from this world naked. This is the way it is with every man. However, a good name, a good name that is the result of a life of godliness, a life of righteous living, which again, we know cannot come through a person's own will or through his own efforts. 
This is the result of the grace of God in a person's life. But when God's grace comes into the life of a man and changes him, it causes him to walk in a different way, to live in a different way than the rest of the world, to live in the godly way, the, the righteous way. And with that comes a good name, that a man attains a good reputation because he's honest in his dealings, he's truthful in his word, he's compassionate and kind in the way that he treats his fellow man, and he gains a reputation, a good name, as this type of a person. And when that is true, then that will carry on with him. It is a a better uh, thing to possess and to have than even to possess silver and gold. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1 says, A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. There, the good name is better than good ointments, right? This is a good thing to desire and to want. Of course, in the proper way, right? We shouldn't uh, seek to uh, have a good name by way of people-pleasing, to do our deeds outwardly, to be seen by men, so that people will say good things about us. That's not the way of the righteous man. The righteous man, he does his good deeds to be seen by God, because this is the fruit of his salvation. He's living according to the gospel. But with that, God gives this blessing of a good name and a good reputation, and that he will have favor both with God and man. And this was true of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 2.52, it says, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. Jesus had a good name and he had favor with God because he lived a perfectly righteous life and he had favor with his fellow man because his good deeds were evident for everyone to see. Verse 2, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Here, the rich and poor, though in terms of their circumstance, in terms of their standing in this present world, Right In terms of the lifestyle in which they live, there is a great disparity that exists between the rich and the poor. The one is wealthy. He lives in a very large house. He has access to all the comforts and pleasures of this life. The other one is poor. He doesn't know how he's going to eat his next meal. Right, So the difficulties that they face are very different, and the life in which they live is a very different life. However, there is a common bond. There is something that unites both rich and the poor and everyone in between together. And what is that? God made both of them, right? The Lord is the maker of the rich and the Lord is the maker of the poor. And not only is he their maker and then he leaves everything up to chance, but God is the one who gives the rich man his riches and God is the one who gives the poor man his poverty. Whatever one's station is in life, Though, again, we are responsible for our own uh, faithfulness to our own diligence. And it is true that some people are poor because they refuse to work. And there are other people who are rich because they are very diligent and they are very hardworking. And that is a natural way in which God has brought this about into the world. However, there are also people who come into riches uh, who don't do so deservedly. And there are other people who come into poverty who are very diligent and hardworking people. And ultimately, whether one is rich or poor, it comes from who? It comes from the Lord. The Lord is the one who assigns it to each person. God is the maker and the sustainer of both the rich and the poor. Riches and poverty come from the hand of God. Therefore, the rich man, does he have reason to boast in his riches? 
No. And yet, this is a common vice among the rich. They think that their riches, their wealth, make them more valuable, make them more important than the rest of the world. And then they can tread down the poor and do whatever they please on this earth. And so this is what they are tempted to do. But they should remember that they were made by the Lord, that everything they have, they have received from God. Then with the poor, the poor, their vice is to be discontent, is to grumble and complain under their situation in life. And yet when the poor remembers that he is made by the Lord, just as the rich man, he should be taught to be humble and to be content with the lot in life that God has given him. Not that the poor man is forbidden from working and being diligent and using whatever means is available to him to increase his situation and to come out of his poverty and have more financial stability. There's nothing wrong with that. However, he should do it according to the will of God, according to those means that are just and righteous in the sight of God. And he should not be discontent. He should not be jealous and envious of another man because he has more wealth. Because in reality... Are any of us going to have equality in wealth? Right? In, a, in an honest, just society, we're all going to, now in a communist society, there is equality, equality of poverty. Everyone is equally poor and wretched and miserable. But in a society that operates with a free enterprise, no one is going to have the same amount. I will have more than another person, and another person will have more than me. And then you find someone, even the richest people in the world, those who are millionaires and billionaires, and yet all of them, there's someone who's greater than them. And then someone who's aspiring to be greater than the richest man in the world. And all of them are going to die and take nothing with them into the life to come. So whatever God gives to us, we should be content. If it is riches, we should be humble. We should use it in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, to be a blessing to God, to be a blessing to our fellow man. And if we are poor, we should be content with the situation that God has given to us and not desire, have a love for money and riches so that we covet what belongs to our neighbor and seek to acquire it in unjust, sinful ways. If we have food and clothing, with this we will be content, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is the way that we should live. Most people, they aspire for contentment by an increase in wealth. But the true way to arrive at contentment is not to increase our wealth, but to reduce our expectation, right? Reduce your expectation to what? Food and clothing. Anything above food and clothing, be content with. And do all of us have food and clothing? Well, we all just ate a bunch of pizza, right? And everyone here has clothing on, so that's good. So we have reason to be content. And then all of us have cars that we drove here with, with air conditioning and heating. We all have homes that we live in. So yes, we may not live in a mansion. There may be our neighbor who has a bigger house or a nicer car, but that's okay. God has given it to them and he's given this to me. And what I have is better than what someone else in the world has. So be content with our station in life and don't grumble against the Lord and against his providence. Number three, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. The prudent man, because of his prudence, because of his wisdom, he's able to discern <coughs> things, what's happening in the world, and avoid dangers and pitfalls. 
things that are going to come, he's able to avoid them so as to hide himself and spare himself from the miseries and from the afflictions that could come because of the evil that is lurking around the corner. The naive man, because he has no wisdom or prudence, he's just walking aimlessly through life, he doesn't see these things and then he falls into them, right? And is punished for them and destroyed by them. Now, ultimately, this must be applied spiritually and eternally because there is evil that is coming upon this present world. Not that it's evil from God for him to punish the world and to bring his wrath. That is good and just and righteous for God to do so. However, the Bible does describe the wrath to come as the day of evil that is coming upon this world, the day in which God will punish the evil of men. Well, the prudent man sees the day of wrath that is coming, and he hides himself from that day of wrath. And as we studied this morning from Hebrews 6, where does he hide himself for the day of wrath? In our Lord Jesus Christ. The naive man, he thinks that everything will continue as it always has. That everything is going to be fine. He has nothing to worry about. God is not going to punish sin. If there is a God at all, we're all going to make it to heaven. So he goes on and persists in his patterns and in his course of sin. And then what's going to happen to him when the day of wrath comes? He's going to be punished for it, right? One example of this would be Noah. Noah saw the day of evil that was coming upon the world. God told him of the flood by which he was going to judge the world in his day. And because Noah was wise in the sight of God, again, not wise through his own strength or through his own cunning or ability, but made wise by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, He was a prudent man in his day, and therefore he did what was necessary, what was prescribed to him by God for the averting of that day of evil, for the saving and preserving of himself and his family from the judgment that was coming on the world of the ungodly. But during his day, we know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that he was proclaiming these truths to the men of his own generation. But did they listen to him? They were the naive ones who continued on in in their course. And then when the floods came and the rain fell upon them, they were all swept away into the judgment. We don't want to be the naive. Rather, we want to be those who are prudent, who have this wisdom, who avoid the day of judgment and what is coming on the world. We also have to apply this to the courses of sin in this world. The prudent man, those equipped with the wisdom of God, they see that the end of sin is death. No matter what pleasures it may present to them, how good it may feel to them, they see and understand that ultimately it will end in death. The naive man does not see the end of sin. He only sees the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that's what he desires and what he wants. Such as we read in Proverbs chapter 7 of the young lad, the naive one, who went there near to the door of the adulteress, of the harlot woman. And there he was ensnared by her, Because he did not understand that when he went into her home, where was he going into? He was going into the depths of hell. He was descending there into Sheol. Verse 4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. The reward of humility and fear of the Lord. These two virtues go hand in hand. They always are accompanying one another. They walk together hand in hand in the life of the believer the one who has received the grace of God. Humility and the fear of God. Those two things 
are necessarily must be true of us if we're Christians. If we don't have humility, we're not Christians. And if we don't have fear of the Lord, we are not Christians, right? These are virtues that must be produced in us by the Spirit of God. But where the Spirit of God is, he will produce humility and the fear of the Lord. But God, in his goodness and grace to us, though these are the result or are produced in us by the Spirit, because the Spirit produces them in us, God rewards us as if they are our own, as if they belong to us. Though they did not originate in us, they originated in Him. They come from our Lord Jesus Christ. They're produced in us by His Spirit. Yet it is ascribed to us as our humility and our fear of the Lord. And God rewards us for these things as if they are our own. And the reward that He gives are riches, honor, and life. And these must be eternal and spiritual. This must be what he's referring to because there are certain saints, such as Lazarus, the rich man in Lazarus. He did not have riches, he did not have honor, and he did not have long life, right? He died in a poor and in a miserable state. But he did receive riches, honor, and life in the life to come, right? In the life to come. And this is because this is the one that the Lord looks to. He who is contrite and lowly in spirit and who trembles at my word, as it says in Isaiah 57, 15. This is what we should be seeking to produce in our own life. We should pursue these virtues of humility and of the fear of the Lord and see that God rewards these things with great blessings, riches, honor, and eternal life. Then uh, verse verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. Thorns and snares are here being used as metaphors for sin. This is the sin that entangles the perverse man. In his way, in the path that he is walking, it is filled with thorns and snares by which he is trapped, by which he is harmed, by which he brings about ruin and misery to his immortal soul. But the wise man who guards himself from thorns and snares, he's going to be far from them. He doesn't want sin to entangle him, to restrain him, to restrict him from pursuing the things of God. So he does what is necessary in order to mortify and crucify the deeds of the flesh. Right? If by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And our Lord Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, what should you do? you should pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, he says you should cut it off. Whatever thorns and snares there are in our life, right? the perverse man, he doesn't deal with these things. And if you don't deal with the thorns and snares, then what's going to happen to you? You're constantly going to be cut and you're going to be entrapped by these sins. We must guard ourselves from the sinful path in order for our life to be preserved so that we are not brought into harm by these things. Hebrews chapter 12, this is what the apostle tells them. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand 
of the throne of God. So lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The sin, this is the snares and the thorns. They easily entangle us. It's hard enough for us to run the race in this body of weakness that we have. How much more when our pathway is encompassed about with thorns and snares, when we are putting them there because of our own stupidity and foolishness. No, whatever there is entangling us, we should seek to shake these things off so that we can run with endurance the race before us. Verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Here, we are taught to train up the child in the way that he should go that it is the duty and responsibility of Christian parents to raise their children in the fear of the Lord. This primary responsibility falls upon the father, who is the head of the home, but also upon the mother, right? Both father and mother should be training up their children in the fear of the Lord. This is what happened with Timothy, with his grandmother and his mother. They made him... They gave him knowledge of the sacred writings, which were able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And these things he knew from when? From his childhood. From his early days, his mother and grandmother were teaching him the scriptures, teaching him the word of God, training him up in the way that he should go. And this is what we should do in our homes. Every home, every Christian home is like a mini church. And the father is the pastor of that church, and the mother is the assistant to him. And the children are the congregation who need to be taught and instructed in the fear of the Lord. And we ought to conduct ourselves in such a way by teaching the word of God in our home. We should pray both with our children and we should pray for our children. We should talk to them about the things of God as we're going here and there and doing the things that we do. We should bring them to church where they can be among the greater body of Christ and hear the word of God taught and be taught and see model what Christian people do. We ought to set a good example for them in our conduct and in our speech, right? Our children are not stupid. They're very observant, kids are, and they know whether or not we're hypocrites or not. And if they see us behaving one way at church, talking one way when we're around the people of God, and then behaving another way at home, right, like a jerk, being impatient, being very angry and bitter. They see those things, and they know, and they'll see, this guy's a phony, he's a fraud, and it'll give them a bad taste about religion and the things of God. This is what we should be doing, training our children in the way that they should go, whatever, according to their capacity, right? Of course, a two-year-old, you cannot uh, teach the greater depths of doctrine to the two-year-old. You have to teach them you know, basic truths, right? Basic understanding, right? Basic training for them. And then as they grow and as they mature and as they advance, then you give them greater revelation, right? You expect greater things of them. And if we do this, he says, when he is old, he will not depart from it. By this, he means he will not easily depart from it or he will not ordinarily depart from it. Right? It is not a promise or a guarantee because ultimately, whether or not the child ma- maintains the faith or departs from the faith, it ultimately depends upon the grace of God, the purpose of God, God's purpose of election. And Abraham, we know, being a righteous man, 
he did diligently teach his son Isaac, but he also would have diligently taught his son Ishmael. Ishmael departed from it, but Isaac maintained it. He preserved in those things. And Isaac, being a righteous man, we know, would have taught his sons the things of God, both Esau and Jacob. Jacob maintained those things, but Esau turned away from them. And according to Romans 9, ultimately that depended upon what? God's purpose of election. However, we also know that God does bless our faithfulness. And when we are faithful, right, the means that God has given to us to obtain the salvation of our little ones, the souls of our children, the means ascribed, prescribed by God for us to seek and obtain their salvation is train them up in the way that they should go. And commonly, ordinarily, generally speaking, if a person does that, then when they are old, their children will not depart from those things. They will walk into the things of God. I met a man yesterday who came to our Bible study, Josh's father, and we were talking, and he said that all of their children are in church. They're all believers, professing believers. They're all trying to live to live a godly life, right? And this because the father and mother raised them in a Christian home, raised them in the things of God, talked to them about these things, took them to church, they did those things. And God gave that blessing to him, and may God give that blessing to many of us as well. So if our children are going to turn away from it, may it not be because we failed in our duty, right? We must be faithful in our duty and raise them in the fear of the Lord. Verse 7, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. The rich rule over the poor. This is the way it is in this present world. Those who have riches also have power. They have might, they have power, they have status in this present world, and they rise into these positions and they rule over the rest of us, right? Over those who are poor. That can be for good and it can be for evil, right? Some rich people are just, they are righteous, they're godly people, or they have even some uh, natural understanding of what is good and righteous, and they rule in a way that is beneficial to the people. Others are oppressors, they're tyrants, and they exploit the people for their own benefit. This is true. Also, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. When we borrow money from the lender, then we are their slave in a sense, because my money does not belong to me. As soon as I get it, who do I have to give it to? I have to give it to him, right? He has a right and a title, right, to what belongs to me. And so in that way, I become his slave, and I'm no longer working for myself, but now I'm working to, for the borrower, right, to pay back what I have borrowed from him, and not only the initial investment, but then whatever interest incurs because of that. And so, because of these things, we ought to strive to not put ourselves in those things, unless it is absolutely necessary, right? We ought to try to not be indebted to anyone, right? To, know, to owe no one anything except to love one another. That's the debt that we ought to have to one another, lest we be put in these vulnerable situations. Uh, Nehemiah... Because when a person has this authority and power over us, then they can use it in a tyrannical way. Verse 
Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons, our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses, that we might get grain because of the famine. Also there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And then Nehemiah addresses them, because in this case, this borrowing and exacting of interest and explo- is a, they're exploiting their own brothers, right? And doing it in a way that is unjust, that is unrighteous, and is contrary to Christian love and charity. And so Nehemiah rebukes them. But this is what happens when a person becomes so dependent upon debt, so enslaved. In this case, they're even having to sell their daughters into bondage. They're being taken away from them in order to satisfy these debts. Verse 8, he who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury will perish. The one who sows iniquity will reap vanity. If a person lives by the sword, he's going to die by the sword. If a person sows sin, he will reap judgment and condemnation. And ultimately, the rod of his fury will perish. Though his rod is very powerful now, though it looks like he will strut through the earth for many, many years, never coming to an end, wreaking havoc and causing destruction on many, many people, yet ultimately, God will bring the rod of his fury to an end. An example of this would be Isaiah 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Here the Babylonians are addressed, who were a very mighty kingdom. And the king of Babylon, who was the chief tyrant and oppressor of the world at this time. And notice what it says in verse, chapter 14, verse 5. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which used to strike the people in fury and unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes against us." Here, the Babylonians, this great empire, and the king who possessed so much power and might, and yet ultimately, God destroyed his fury. The wrath, the anger, his fury subsided. It came to an end because God took his kingdom and his power away from him. And when it happened, there was peace and rest among those that he used to oppress. And this, though, is common in this present world. Right? If it's not the Babylonians, it's the Assyrians. And if it's not the Assyrians, it's the Egyptians. And if it's not the Egyptians, it's the Romans. And if it's not the Romans, it's the Democratic Party. Right? There's always some oppressor that will rise up and that causes turmoil and wreaks havoc there upon the people. But ultimately, God will bring all of it to an end. 
their fury will cease because God will deliver his people and he will establish a kingdom of peace when his son Jesus Christ returns and his kingdom is set up here in the new heavens and new earth, then there will be no more oppressor. There will be no more rod of fury to oppress the people of God. Verse 9. In contrast to the sower of iniquity, there is the one who is generous. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Right? Instead of using riches to oppress people, instead of using one's power and might to bring a rod of fury upon them, instead, if God blesses us with material blessings, then we ought to be generous to others and we ought to give some of our food to the poor. Right? That this is one of the traits of a Christian, of Christian virtue, is that they love others, they're generous to others, and they help those who are oppressed. They help those who are poor, right? That we ought to do these kinds of things, these kinds of good deeds, especially if the poor person is our brother in Christ, to do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. In Ecclesiastes 11.1, it tells us to cast our bread upon many waters. And then ultimately, what will that bread do? It will return to you. This is the way that we should live. We should use our unrighteous wealth in this present life to store up treasures in heaven by supporting the things of God, by ministering to the needs of the saints, by helping the poor. Whatever we can do to be generous and to be compassionate to others, this is how we ought to live in this life. Instead of using our position and authority to oppress and to uh, be a tyrant against other people. Verse 10, drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. Right, a scoffer, a person who is a troublemaker. There are such people who love to cause problems, to uh, sow discord among brethren, who are a constant source of contention, of strife, of bickering, right? Always bringing up things like this to stir the pot. Well, when those people are around, whether they're in the family, whether they're in the church, whether they're in society, these kinds of troublemakers who go from house to house saying things that they should not say, when they are doing their dirty deeds, what is the result? What always happens? There is contention. People who are not at odds with one another, all of a sudden there's contention, there's fighting, there's turmoil between these two people. And who is the source of such turmoil? It's the scoffer, the one who goes around and who is constantly stirring the pot, setting one person against another person. Well, when you rid yourself of such a scoffer, what happens to contention and strife? It ceases, right? It goes away. Now, instead of people fighting and warring with one another, they're living at peace. They're living in harmony with one another because the troublemaker, the troubler, is no longer there stirring the pot, right? And this is why the Bible tells us the divisive person, he says, warn him once and then warn him twice and then have nothing more to do with him. Because a divisive person who is always dividing people, right, isn't one of the goals of the church that we be united in faith, that we have the bond of unity, the bond of faith among us. One of the things we are to pursue as a church and in our homes as well is that we be united and bound together in love. So the gospel is teaching us to be united, but a divisive person, what is he always trying to do? 
He's trying to divide and separate people and bring hostility, war, where there is no war. Well, if you remove the divisive person, then this stumbling block, this obstacle to unity is no longer there, and there will be more peace and more harmony there in the church. It's hard enough for us to get along as it is, because we all have the flesh, right? We all have this natural bent to selfishness, to get our own way, to pursue our own interests. So we're always having to fight against this anyway. And it is there within us, this this spark of selfishness, this pride and vanity, and to pursue our own interests, that remains in the flesh. And if you have a divisive person, it's like pouring gasoline on that spark. And when you pour gasoline on the spark, what does it do? It causes it to rage into a flame. It brings it out, and this is what happens with the divisive man. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, here in both 1 and 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy of such persons who will come into the church and um, it leads to turmoil and conflict. And he warns Timothy of this temptation and propensity in, him, in, in all of us as well, and especially in the Christian minister, right? If he's doing this, how is there going to be any harmony in the church if the minister, the pastor, is himself a divisive man, constantly bickering and fighting and quarreling with other people? That's not the way that we should live. 2 Timothy 2.22 Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. A quarreler, one who likes to fight, constantly embroiled in these controversies and fighting and bickering. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. There he mentions controversial questions, disputes about words, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, constant friction, Right? That is contrary to love, harmony, peace, unity within the body of Christ, which are the things that we should aspire to. Well, the person who is the scoffer, he is the bickering, quarreling person. He is the sore spot there in the body that brings these things about. And if you drive those people away, then contention will go out as well. Not that we'll ever be completely free of contention. Because so long as you are here and I am here and we all have the flesh, there's always going to be that potential and there will be that reality within us. 
However, it won't be as common. It won't be constant, right? It shouldn't be that way in the church, that it's constantly embroiled in controversies, in contentions, in conflicts, in fighting, right? When that is the case, it shows that there's something, something is wrong, something is amiss, something is not right there in the body of Christ. There's a sickness there that needs to be dealt with. Verse 11, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. The one who loves purity of heart, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. Now, again, in the natural state, who loves purity of heart? Nobody loves purity of heart in the natural state. So this must be a work of God. But when God does that, and God does do that in the righteous, in his children, they do love purity of heart. So the one who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious, these two things go together as well. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth flows. If a person loves purity in the heart, then what's going to be in his lips? His mouth is going to speak in accordance to what is in his heart. He has a pure heart, therefore his lips will be gracious. The words that he says are going to be good words, kind words, words of wisdom, words of truth, words of understanding, gracious words like this. And the result is the king will be his friend. He will rise, not again, not universally, but he will rise to a position of prominence Right, that people will want to listen to what he has to say. They will want him as a counselor. They will want him to give them advice. And there are even those who have risen to positions where they have the ear of the king because of the purity of their heart and because of the graciousness and soundness of their words. No clearer example of this than Joseph in the Bible. Joseph, whenever uh, he presented everything to Pharaoh and Pharaoh met with his counselors, he said, is there anybody that we can find who has the spirit of God in him like this man? Who has the wisdom that this man possesses? We can't think of anyone else. Let's put him in charge of everything. And he was second in command only to Pharaoh. The king was his friend, right? Joseph rose because of the wisdom, the graciousness of his words when he counseled Pharaoh and what it was that he was supposed to do. But this happened as well with Daniel who was an advisor, one of the chief magistrates in all of the uh, Babylonian and then later the Medes and the Persian Empire. He was friend to Darius. Also, Mordecai was raised up in, into uh, one of the advisors of Ahasuerus, who was there, uh, the king of the land. Nehemiah with Artaxerxes, Ezra with Cyrus. All of them became friend of the king because of the purity of heart and the gracious words but ultimately, it will be true of all of God's people. And who is the king? Who is the king that will be our friend if we have a pure heart and gracious words? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one that we want as our friend. He will be our friend if these things are true of us. This is one of the great blessings that he gives to his people. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, and he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. Ultimately, in this world, the preserving of knowledge, true knowledge, right, true wisdom, we're talking about the wisdom that leads to salvation, the wisdom found in the word of God. 
God is the one who preserves this knowledge on the earth. Now, it is our responsibility to contend for the faith, to fight for it, to stand for it, to be a buttress of the truth. The church is supposed to do that, and we are to pass this on from generation to generation to the best of our ability. But ultimately, who is the one that preserves his word from generation to generation to generation? It is the Lord who does so. Only God can do so. And no matter what, right, when everything looks so bleak and so miserable, and we wonder, where is God in all this? Isn't God able to cause his word to go forth in power? For there to be a great revival of the things of God? Actually, just this last week, it was October 31st. Some of you may think, well, why are we talking about Halloween? But we're not. We're talking about Reformation Day. And during the Reformation, isn't this exactly what happened? You had all of this darkness there in the Christian world because of the Roman Catholic Church and all of their doctrines that polluted and corrupted those things with all of the power and might there with the church. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you have this very small movement of men who were faithful to the word of God, who were trying to recapture what the Bible taught and teach those things and what ended up happening. This great revival of truth, of knowledge and understanding that spread into the world and we are still beneficiaries of what those men did over 500 years ago. But who is the one that ultimately brought that about? Only the Lord can do such things. Only the Lord can do such things. Who can take a Roman Catholic monk and convert him into a Christian pastor. And who, you know, considered the father, though he wasn't the first, but considered the father of the Reformation in Martin Luther. Who can take a Roman Catholic who's studying to be a lawyer, right? And we know those lawyers are no good, like John Calvin, and convert him and make him into one of the greatest theologians in the history of the world. And who wrote and who passed on to many generations and did so much work and labor to reestablish and recapture the knowledge of God and the truth of God and to spread it into the world. And we are still benefiting from that. Now, again, we should be grateful and thankful to God for using such men to do so and should honor their memory and what they did. But ultimately, who is the one that did that? God does. He will preserve his word. The gates of hell will never vanquish the knowledge of God from this world. They can try all that they want. It will never happen because the Lord preserves knowledge and he is the one who overthrows the words of the treacherous man. God will bring all of the false teaching, all of the lies, whether false religion or false Christianity or whatever cult it is, their treacherous words, God will overthrow all of it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. God is the one who preserves his knowledge on the earth. Now again, though God preserves it, he does use means to the preserving of it. It is our responsibility to hold fast to the truth and to teach it to our children and to our grandchildren, and if God lets us see our great-grandchildren, to teach it to them as well, and to do everything we can to pass it on to the next generation. Then verse 13, the sluggard says, there is a lion outside, I will be killed in the streets. Here, the sluggard <clears throat> will use any excuse, no matter how improbable, to justify not going to work. And in this case, there's a lion outside, in the streets, in the city. How often do lions wander off into Shawnee or Tameker or into Oklahoma City? How often do treacherous animals 
deadly animals, wild beasts, wander off into the city like this? How often are people even killed out in the wild by lions or wild beasts like that? Typically, even animals that have the ability to kill men, they're terrified of people. And when they see men, they run away from them. So it's very rare for someone to be killed by a wild animal, to be torn piece to piece. And yet here, the sluggard is afraid that there's a lion in the street. Therefore, he has to lock himself in his house and stay in his bed all day long or sit on his couch all day, right? Watching TV, eating his potato chips, right? Because he cannot go to work. He may die on the way. Now, he doesn't have a problem driving down to the store to get a pizza, though the, the danger and threat of death from driving is far superior and greater than it is from a lion or from anything else that keeps him from working. See, he can overcome whatever danger there is in order to satisfy his lust or his desire for food or whatever pleasure or comfort. But then when it comes to going to work, going to church, the things of God, any excuse is a good excuse, right? To skip those things that he does not want to do, no matter how improbable, impractical, no matter how foolish it may appear, such as a lion in the street. Verse 14, the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. The mouth of the adulteress is the deep pit, right? Her mouth with her words, her flattering words, her flirty words that she uses to entice young men, to entice young men, old men, whatever, uh, into committing adultery and fornication with her. It is the lip that is used as the, the means of securing them, of getting their attention, right, of getting them into her gaze so that she can then do whatever she pleases with them. A deep pit that ultimately descends to hell. And the one cursed of the Lord will fall into it. A person who is under the curse of God, who is a reprobate, a wicked man, he is the one who will fall into the pit of the adulterous woman. So we must be very, very careful concerning these things. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 26. says, And I discovered more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. They are a bit more bitter than death because this will ultimately lead to eternal death, eternal destruction. Snares, nets, chains, right? The one who's pleasing to the Lord will escape from her. The one who is prudent and wise, who sees where it ends, he will escape from her, but the sinner, he will be entrapped by her. Then lastly, verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. There, foolishness, which is being used as a synonym for sin, right? The reason the child is foolish is because of sin, right? We're not talking about just children like to play with toys, climb trees, you know, run around and make a bunch of noise, you know, do those kinds of things that kids do that get on all of our nerves. No, kids certainly like to do that. And in a sense, that is foolishness. But this is specifically talking about sin. It is sin that is in the heart of the child. Now, again, this is teaching that there is original sin or there is a depravity of nature 
from which we come into the world with. All of us enter into the world with a nature that is depraved, right? That is inclined toward sin. And as soon as the child is able to manifest this sinful nature, he will do so, right, in various ways. And anyone who doesn't believe in original sin, they just need to have one child. And, you know, as soon as that child turns one or two, then you're convinced of it, right? You understand and see, yes, everyone is a sinner by birth, and this is true by nature. So foolishness is there, bound up in the heart of the child. And it is the rod of discipline that will remove it from him. Proper discipline, right? Proper punishments uh, because of bad behavior. Whenever the child begins to manifest the bad behavior, if discipline occurs, then it will drive this bad behavior out of the child, right? So that they will not do these things. When the child looks at the parent and says, no, and, you know, sticks their tongue out at them, and you don't correct that, you don't drive that out, then what are they going to keep doing? They're going to keep saying no to you and keep sticking their tongue out at you. And then as they get older, it will become more annoying and obnoxious. It's not cute, right? No one thinks it's cute, right? Especially when it's a 15 or 16-year-old brat, right, who is doing and behaving in these ways. And then if they do it to you, maybe they do it to the police officer, right? Maybe they do it to the judge, and then they get thrown in prison, which is where they ought to be. All right, so we need to drive this foolishness out of them, and it is the rod of discipline that does so, right? If you spool the rod, you hate the child if you do not give them proper discipline. So we must discipline our children in a proper way. Now, again, he's not talking about beating them. He's not talking about nitpicking them and harping upon them upon every little thing that they do. We can be overbearing and we can be uh, unloving in the way that we deal with our children. There must be a mixture of positive reinforcement, right, where we are rewarding good behavior and punishing bad behavior. If all we do is point out all of their faults and all the the, uh, foolish things that they do and berate them all the time, then we're going to beat them down and we're going to break their spirit in a bad way. Right? There needs to be that whenever there is bad behavior. But when there's good behavior and they do what's right, then we need to praise them and reward them and honor them and tell them that we're proud of them for doing such things. But the reason that this is necessary is that we have to teach them how to distinguish between good and evil. Good behavior and bad behavior. Consequences. That there are consequences for bad behavior. Right? They need to be taught those things. They need to be taught that there is punishment. Right? This is the punishment that you get if you do this kind of things. They need to know all of these things so that they will have sorrow over sin, so that they will have humility, so that they will understand uh, what it is that they are doing. And this is true. Even children who are very young, if you teach them... They want to please their parents. Many times, children, they want to do what's pleasing to their parents. And if you will instill that in them and then explain to them what they've done, <clears throat> many times our kids would start crying before I'd even discipline them, right? Because of, they're sorrowful, they're sad because of what they have done. And I'm sad because of what they have done, but it didn't stop me from spanking them. But then we're all crying together, and then you can affirm them and tell them how much you love them, right? All of this is good and preparatory for what? for understanding the gospel, salvation. 
Because isn't this what ultimately they need? Sorrow over their sin against God. That there's a difference between good and evil. That there is punishments and consequences for sin. Right? All of this is necessary, essential, if they're going to understand the gospel. If they're going to understand salvation. And that training ground begins when they are very, very young, when we're teaching them, no, 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 don't do that. And yes, this is good. When we're saying these things, we're beginning that preparatory work of preparing their hearts and minds to hear the gospel and to understand the gospel, to understand their own sinfulness against God, the consequences of their sin, the punishment of their sin, and the need for them to be sorrow, sorrowful and repentant towards God. This is why we must train up our children and discipline them, not, not only for our own sanity, right? It, that's a part of it as well. Who wants to live in a, with a bunch of bratty kids that don't obey, right? It would be miserable to live in a house, like with five kids. Imagine someone with five kids, three, three dollars and two sons, and none of them obeyed. Who would want to live there? It would be miserable. But if it's a well-ordered home, everyone's happy, especially the father, right? Because they do what they're supposed to do. No one wants, so it's not only for our own benefit and advantage, though it does have great advantage in this world, but ultimately it's for their salvation, for their soul, for their spiritual advantage that we want to discipline and train them in these things. So, and that can't happen without the rod of discipline, right? No matter what, a psychiatrist, psychologist, a child expert, whatever, these people don't know anything. Have you, actually, go and see how their children behave. That's what we need to do. These child experts and psychiatrists, I want to go and see your children and see if they listen to you. And most of the time, what are they doing? Their kids are maniacs running around all over the place, and you're going to tell me how to raise my kids? I don't think so. I'm going to stick to the Bible and what the Word of God says. And the Word of God tells me that there's foolishness in the heart of the child and that that foolishness has to be driven out of them by the rod of discipline, done in the proper way, with true love for the children, but done in the fear of the Lord and for their ultimate spiritual good. This is what we ought to pursue. And this is consistent with the way that God deals with us as well. Because we are his children, and foolishness is in us as well. And God has to drive it from us through the rod of discipline. He disciplines us as he sees fit for our own benefit and for our own good. And as he does with us, so we ought to do in our own homes as well. All right, well, we'll stop there for today, and then we'll pray, and uh, then after that, we'll be dismissed. And just, again, a reminder, please continue to pray for uh, Paul and his mother and his father, especially his mother, uh, who has broken her hip, and I haven't found out anything else. Denny, have you heard anything? Okay, she's in a room up at Mercy, and Amy and I are going to go see her tomorrow. So once we find something out, uh, we'll let everyone know, but... Please continue to pray for them and keep them in your, in your prayers. Okay, uh, Casey, would you mind praying and dismissing us today?